We're back for episode two. Of the breakdown with Brad Corbin Becky. You decided to show up again. You know, I do. I will. I can, I'll continue for the foreseeable future. For the foreseeable future. Yeah. I think we had great response from the last episode. Yeah, we had a good time. It was fun. People like the name change. People like the style. Let us know if you disagree. <laughs> it was. I thought it was great. A little feedback from my son who listened and told me that I don't speak at this tone at home, that he thought I was much more formal on the show. Really? Which I thought was interesting because I don't think I change. I don't think this. Yeah. Is, I think this is just how I stand. My standard tone and approach. He thought I was much more jovial, much more lighthearted at home, and I was a little bit surprised by that. Yeah, that was his feedback because he listened to the episode, thought it was great. He also wanted to chime in and make it clear that he also disagreed with the fact that your name wasn't in there. It was ju- wasn't just my daughter's. It was my son too who also disagreed with your name not being in the original show. Shout out to the Broadcorp children, and so, favorite people. So yes, yeah, so we're, we're I'm glad to be doing this again under the new title of The Breakdown with Broadcorp and Becky. Let's kick things off. What are we going to break down first? We are starting with the illustrious CPAC. 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 So for those not familiar, CPAC is a convention in the nation's capital this year, conservative political action conference, and it was largely ghost town and Trump country all in one. It, uh, for co- CPAC is like Comic-Con for political nerds. Right. And so if you don't know what- Republican com- conservatives. Yes. And if you don't know what Comic-Con is, then I can't help you. <laughs> but so CPAC is a little bit Can of- we a- compare it to BravoCon for my- What's BravoCon? Bravo, come on, the television channel Bravo. I know the t- television. Real Housewives, Vanderpump Rules, lots of scandal this weekend. I mean, come on. Okay. I didn't know they have a con- <laughs> Have you been to the convention? I have not. But Would man, you go? I don't know about that, but I like watching or following along on Instagram. I saw some things. We might need to do a future show where I ask you about that because <laughs> I saw a number of things trending this weekend about some of the words that you just said. Oh, yeah. And we might have to come back. We might have to do a segment on where you help me understand what's going on with these shows. But let's go back to CPAC. Yes. You were not there. Correct. How times have you gone in never. the past? Never been. I've never been either. But it used to be a little bit more respected. Now, I guess maybe from when my- When was that? I don't know. I, I will say used to be more well attended by some more of what I like to call the sensible, responsible Republicans. I think it's very notable of who was there and who was not there. So CPAC is, a, is the conservative political action Convent, Correct. hosted by, it's organized by the American Conservative Union, yes. started in the mid-70s. And so it's the kind of off-year and election year kind of annual gathering. Correct. And so this year, as you're pointing out, there were a number, it's usually r- relatively highly attended. Yeah. It's usually, Ronald Reagan was spoke there many times. He was, I think, the inaugural speaker of the first CPAC event. It's where there's presidential candidates come, many who eventually, presidential candidates come, and some that will eventually become president will come. Right. And so it's a big event. Absolutely. And some notable absences were McCarthy, McConnell, Pence, Christie, and DeSantis. There was also- And you. And Becky Ellery. And, and you. Becky so, Shear, for the record, we also, I am officially married. My married name is Cher. I'm transitioning into that. So congratulations. I, I forget sometimes, so I'll still refer to myself as Ellery. But if you hear Becky Shear, that's me now. So you did not go I along not. with other top flight presidential candidates. Right. What is it, what's the significance of, of to you of those other candidates that you mentioned, distinguished candidates? Not It's just there's a lot of voters there, there's a lot of activists there. It used to be sponsored by Fox News and so it was broadcast everywhere. There's a lot of vendors that attend. It's just typically a platform and the press clips and the Twitter clips and just the attention that is put on these candidates and their speeches is typically really, you know, large. 
What do you attribute to the lack of attendance this year? Twofold. Trump, it, it's, it is Trump country, like we mentioned. So the support for Trump is there. So whether people want to contend to that. Also, there was probably a lack of welcoming, welcomeness, is that a word, for some of these. It's not like McConnell or McCarthy or DeSantis are going to be welcomed with open arms. Nikki Haley did show up. She did both club the Club for Growth fundraiser where DeSantis was and CPAC, and she was heckled. She was heckled at CPAC. Correct. Talk about, for a moment, because we talked about our first episode, our premiere episode of The Breakdown with Barack Obama, and we talked a lot about Haley's announcement. DeSantis did not go. Mm -hmm. DeSantis is not announced. Haley has. Give your perspective, your experience on decision to go, not to go. What would you have done if you've been advising a presidential campaign? You got to determine if it's going to help more or hurt more. For DeSantis, I think he or his team probably realized that the amount of Trump supporters that are going to be there are going to make his time there difficult. They're going to be in his face with questions and cameras and trying to catch him saying something, being against Trump. It gives fodder for Trump to be up on stage and say whatever nickname he's given to DeSantis. I don't know if he has a little Marco-type nickname yet for his friend DeSantis, but it gives more fodder for Trump to go against him. And I don't think that DeSantis, I don't think that the benefits that a DeSantis speech or presence there benefits him more than the potential issues that would come up. What do you think on that? Let's talk about where DeSantis was. Right. He spoke at Club for Growth event, and then he spoke at an event at the Reagan Library yes. out in California. So he was with Republicans. He was attending with events with conservatives. He just wasn't at what I think we both would fairly describe as a pro-Trump event, <laughs> although it's advertised as just an overall conservative event. I got to give props for Haley to going. I think it was a smart move because I think it also exposed the level of something that we've talked about, the amount of entrenchment that Trump activists have inside the operation. Nikki Haley was uh, heckled in the lobby. She was booed while she spoke, booed while she was speaking. There were, I saw on TV, I sent some clips and for some show prep, a number of media outlets conducted interviews with people and they were appreciative of the, some of these candidates coming. But a lot of them spoke about the loyalty that they still have for Trump. DeSantis was not there. There were people from Florida who were there saying, that, look, we like Ron DeSantis. Now's not his time. We want President Trump back. A lot of the same comments about Nikki Haley, aside from the heckling that she endured. And I was surprised and disappointed at the amount of support that the former president had there, vocal support, but also sophomoreish type support between the booing and the heckling right. and the people there. I was really disappointed by that. I don't want to be right on this. But I watched the analysis this weekend of the event. I listened to Trump's speech. I listened to Nikki Haley's speech. And I was left with further belief that what we've talked about is true, is that it's likely going to be Donald Trump. A little bit to Trump's speech. We, we I don't think anybody is concerned about the level of ego that Trump might be lacking, right? And where he's got a healthy ego. And he proved that in his speech. He said, in 2016, I declared I am your voice. Today, I add, I am your warrior. I am your justice. And for those who have been wronged and betrayed, I am your retribution. Wow. I had the opportunity to interview when I was, did some writing for the Star Tribune. I interviewed Governor Mark Dayton. One of my last interviews I did. And Governor Dayton and I spoke about Trump and he was campaigning on. Governor Dayton's campaign model was a better Minnesota, which is adopted by a lot of Repub Democratic affiliates and their groups in Minnesota. One of the things that he said to me was, I think that Trump is successful because of his simple messaging. Make America great again is what he was talking about. Yeah. 
And so when Trump speaks in this type of language, as you articulated, he is, that's just red meat to his troops. That is red meat to his followers. That's exactly what they want to hear. These are people who are aggrieved, who feel cheated, who feel misled, who feel lied to. And they, in some instances, are not have, a, I think, a full grasp of reality. And so when Trump stands up and says that stuff, that's their bread and butter. He's singing their tune. And that's what's so depressing. It was depressing all of the things I saw, but his rhetoric yep. was spot on. And I'm not agreeing with this rhetoric, but if, you, if one of the things we're going to break down is the, his kind of speech, we complimented Trump on the previous episode for having the political acumen to go to Ohio before Biden did. And he knows what to say to this crowd. And that's why I think there's really no reason to think it's not going to work this time. And like we talked about last week, any anybody going to break through? These voters want a fighter. And he not only has proven that he's going to be that fighter, but he's literally saying it. I am your warrior. I am your justice. He is, I am, again, and you even said it to his troops, right? It, it quite, it, that's what it is. It's his troops. He's the warrior. He's the fighter. He is going to be the one who is speaking in these ways that just everybody, they feel it in their heart, right? These diehards and man, he gets them riled up. It's impressive how in tune he is with that type of rep. He shows up, he knows exactly what to say. Correct. And it's frustrating from my perspective because I was, would hope that he would bungle one of these things, but he's shown quite a skill in, in, in messaging to the sentence that you just read, quoting him was I, I listened to it. I'm like, oh boy, that's really, that's good. Not good in the sense that I wanted to succeed, but it's good for his supporters. And it's exactly what they want to hear. And that's what's so frustrating. And he delivers it. I didn't watch the entirety of his speech. I didn't watch him say these words, but I can hear in my head after so many times of hearing his speech of him delivering it in a way that those people are on their feet and they are clapping and they're drowning him out because they are so jazzed about those words and having that fighter and somebody that's going to take down the Democrats, take down the liberal policy, take down the wokeness, take down the fake news, take down all of these, again, like he said, injustices to what they've been feeling for the last two, four, 50 years. So we had talked about it last episode about, and I had said that I thought it was going to be Trump. Right. And you, I want to be clear and fair in how I describe this. Do you still think it's going to be him or are you described your position rather than me? I'm cautiously optimistic. I do think that there, if, I mean, it has to start soon. Like I said, I don't necessarily feel like it could be Nikki Haley. I think there is a possibility for if it's DeSantis to get in to he's got to he's got to come at it with some angle and something he's making the work doing the work he's meeting with donors he's trying to carve out that lane for himself but he's got to find something that can put him up on par up there whether it's what that answer is if I had that answer I could be Mm -hmm. making buku bucks here I'm cautiously optimistic I do think it's likely going to be Trump I want to remain optimistic I'm not ready to throw it away yet I'm a glass half full guy I'm always, it's always partly sunny to me versus partly cloudy, but I have to be a realist. And I watched this episode, I watched CPAC, the ep- I saw the speeches and listened to the coverage, and I was left with a complete belief that it was going to be him even more. And it was depressing to me. It was frustrating to me, in all honesty. It was frustrating to watch a combination of things. No self-awareness on kind of the emptiness of the crowd, 
you would think that the fact that it was a sparsely attended event is something that Republicans should be self-aware of, that there's a lack of enthusiasm. But the people that are showing up, I don't think they represent Republicans across the state, across the country. I don't think, to be honest with you, I don't know if they would represent, I don't know. There's a reason you haven't gone to CPAC and there's a reason I haven't gone to CPAC. But this was a real kind of motley rough crowd who was there a group of hooligans that were there to support trump and i'm worried that's the that's where the party's at right now do i was gonna do questions and you just made my points for me but this is where i my question comes so to those points one sparsely attended versus previous years is that not telling to a lacking or waning support for president trump no because i think you and i both know that there were I think other reasons that there wasn't some attendance. The organizer of this event, the head, the organizer of this event has faced some allegations in a lawsuit regarding United States Senate race in Georgia, and so I think there were a number of candidates that and some sexual alleged sexual allegations. Correct. Yes, and so I think there was a belief that a number of candidates wanted to stay away for a reason. And this lawsuit, in essence, gave them that. There was a story, I think, Cios or another publication, maybe it was Politico, where someone had said, you know, that they'd been looking for a reason to not go to CPAC. And this lawsuit and these allegations gave them a reason not to go. And so I think some of those candidates intentionally, Speaker McCarthy, McConnell, and some other legislative Republicans stayed away. I think some of the candidates stayed away because it's such a pro-Trump event. And so I think CPAC is losing a little bit of its luster. But so I completely agree. That's why the big names stayed away. Why the activists? I, I don't. These are well, activists. I see your point. The attendees, the thousands and thousands that usually attend it. I don't necessarily, if they're still diehard, we'll come back to January 6th and insurrection stuff, that this was Trump's election. Where were they? Where were they there to support Trump and the conservative cause? You made a great point in the last episode, which is that Trump doesn't need a majority. He needs a plurality. Right. And so his supporters are showing up. Do I think he, and so th- what the concern I have is there's not a candidate or a campaign that's willing to fill that auditorium up with their supporters. It seems that people are accepting the premise that CPAC is Trump's territory, which it largely is, and there doesn't seem to be an interest to have a fight in that arena. I didn't see, while I'm happy that Nikki Haley went and she spoke, I'm disappointed in her, how she was treated. Um, Her campaign obviously made a calculated decision not to fill that room with her supporters. Mm -hmm. And it's a challenge that I think that they're ha- they have here. Because right now it appears that there's not of a there's not a lot of organizational intensity and energy for any of the presidential candidates other than Trump. And that's my concern, is that y- you can be critical of the fact that the other candidates didn't go. He went, and I guarantee you, he spoke to a very receptive crowd that day when he spoke. Our only criticism of it is that it wasn't a highly attended, organized, well-run event. But the bottom line is, if you're looking at it from the perspective of a Trump supporter, he dominated the event. Some of them probably think, and some of it is probably true, that his mere attendance and his connection to that event scared some of them away. And so he's winning that argument. And that's what is concerning to me as we move forward is because he had a good weekend. He won the straw poll, significantly won the straw poll. I think DeSantis came in in second with around roughly 20%. Yeah. And, and Trump had 62, 63. And Nikki Haley had around 6%. Yeah. And this is someone who you and I, I think both 
want to succeed as a presidential candidate. And so it's frustrating. I will also say a little bit of the insight for reasons to go both go with Nikki Haley and not pack the room with her supporters and DeSantis's decision to not go is could be largely I was working on these campaigns. Both those decisions could be largely attributed to the straw poll and to the messaging that they need to have coming out of that. And Nikki Haley's team's able to go and say, Trump spent a lot of time and money getting his folks there. We didn't, we knew we've only been in a week. We knew that was going to be the case. And DeSantis can say, of course, I got 20%. I wasn't even there. So their messaging off the back end of that straw poll can a little bit calculated in in their decision to either speak or not speak. Correct. Uh, The long-term problem for Republicans is going to be that there is such a focus and interest on Trump being in this race. It dominates the media attention. Anything he does, everything he does is going to dominate and is there a campaign willing to go toe-to-toe with him? There just hasn't been a lot of success in that. And let's, I want to give a shout-out to us collectively because on our first episode, our last week's episode, we discussed the concern about the fact that there were too many candidates in this race and what impact that could have on the race. And one of the candidates that I think we may have mentioned previously or listed, former governor of Maryland, Hogan, announced on Sunday he was not running. And one of the reasons he cited for not running was a crowded field and how a crowded field benefited Trump. Absolutely. His quote, it was a really great statement. and I thought it was a good analogy here. He said, to once again be a successful governing party, we must move on from Donald Trump. The stakes are too high for me to risk being a part of another car pileup that could potentially help Mr. Trump recapture the nomination. And that's exactly it. And for him to have that wherewithal of knowing his likelihood to be the nominee is very minimal, but let me stay out of the way so somebody else potentially could be that. You don't see that a lot in politics of these people that that believe it's their turn and that they're going to be the next choice. So mad props to Governor Hogan for realizing. That's the second time over the course of doing a podcast where we've made a declarative statement about something happening and it following through. Of course, we did it about the UFOs that the Biden administration needed yeah. to speak up right after we launched that episode. It's clear that the Biden administration listened to our analysis, came out and gave a declarative statement. It's very clear to me based on the timeline here. The only thing I'm left to come to the conclusion is that Governor Hogan listened to the breakdown with Broadcorp and Becky, listened to our concern about multiple candidates getting in the race, and had a lightning bolt hit him with a clear conscience as to what he needed to do, and that was to get out of the race. Absolutely. I believe that we are the only Republicans across the country who have had that thought and statement. So I will take that any day. That's good to know. I'm glad glad I have that confidence with you. There is something, though, that could potentially stop a Trump presidency. But before we get to that, can I make one more more comment about CPAC? I want to get some of your thoughts. We, We did a show with the DFL on January 6th. We've talked about it being, we believe that Biden won. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I believe that both of us believe that President Biden won the election. We believe January 6th riot and storming of the Capitol was an insurrection. There was a panel at CPAC, a panel, one of the top attended panels calling, saying that was titled, they stole it from us thoughts. They're insane. <laughs> I don't know any other way to say it. And, and again, if you don't know my background, I'm not a psychiatrist, psychologist. I don't have a, uh, I'm not a doctor in any way. My armchair analysis is those people have uh, delusions in some way. And as I said in the last show, one of the concerns I have dealing with a lot of these Trump supporters is that the, the, he campaigned on the belief, campaigned on telling people that he was going to build a wall and that Mexico was going to pay for it. I never believed that was going to happen. And there is a number of, I think, reality checks that I'm frustrated with Republicans on. And this belief that, Do- that Donald Trump won the past election, 
blows my mind. It absolutely blows my mind. And it's a cancer on the party that needs to be removed. It is it is a problem that it continues to consume our party, this delusional type of mindset. And I think this is going to be problematic and Republicans need to find a way to, to exercise it from the party. And la- I agree. And last comment on this is that there was supposedly a large document honoring those have who have been incarcerated because of their actions during the insurrection that was in the lobby of CPAC. Folks could sign it. And our good friend Mike Lindell was also a speaker there. Goes to tell you a little bit about CPAC. And I guess if you believe the election was stolen from us, what are you doing listening to our podcast? But I guess we'll take you any listeners and hopefully we win you over. But you can move on to the next topic. I sorry I interrupted. No, I thought that was all. a telling thing to to do a little plug of also what this event does tailor to their messaging to. So you missed not being there then. Shucks. I don't know what I, I probably would have gotten arrested. <laughs> I probably I just I don't know that I would have been able to keep keep my mouth shut. I probably would have said something, asked a question or done something else. It's just it's ridiculous. It's a it's just unfortunate. It's unfortunate to see. But one of the things that we've discussed is one thing that could derail Trump's presidency is the potential of indictments. Correct. We've touched on it before, but there was some news this weekend or in the last couple of days about a candidate who I think a former politician, current polit- I guess he's still a politician, but former office holder that we both, I think, enjoy quite a bit. Yes. I'll let you take the lead on this. Chris, a New Jersey, former governor of New Jersey, great guy, also a good fighter. I have been a big fan. I was a big supporter of him. One of my, again, shout outs to my friend Kevin Poindexter, good listener, big fan of the name change here. Worked for Chris Christie out in New Jersey a while back and got me a copy of his Time magazine when he was on the cover of Time, signed by him. Wow. Yeah, I own that. I'm pretty proud of that. Back, Thanks, to, back to the actual question. Chris Christie did say he he predicts that Donald Trump will be indicted. What do you think happens if he gets indicted? Unless he is behind bars and unable to speak to the press and to speak to his followers. I do believe that he has said it himself. He is going to continue to run despite being indicted if that should happen. Um, What a mess. What a mess. What a mess. I think Governor Christie, uh, I hope Governor Christie is correct that he'll be indicted. The problem is that's the type of stuff that would stop a normal candidate. And the normal rules just don't seem to apply to him. Trump has even said he believes it would enhance his numbers. Probably. He's probably true. Yeah. <laughs> he's probably true. With, in terms of getting the nomination? Yeah. Absolutely. I think it would. I think it, it would be an overreach. One of the speakers at CPAC was calling for the FBI, the Department of Justice, to be defunded. Apparently, Republicans not happy with their past election results in terms of messaging have decided to fully embrace one of the messaging concerns on the Democratic side, which is defund the police and defund law enforcement. They're not advocating for it. I cannot think of a more nightmarish situation. While I have the utmost faith in the Department of Justice that if Trump is charged and indicted, whether at the federal level or at the state level, wherever that happens, that it is a prudent decision, it will play right into his hands. He will play the victim. He will play the martyr. He will, it will, depending on the timing of it, it will certainly elevate his chances to get the nomination. And people will, and it will probably, and you're right, it will be a boost to his nomination. It will be a boost to his nomination. We talked a little bit about George Santos and because of his lies, his inability to run in his congressional office and serve his constituents. Talk about on a way grander scale, larger impact, if this should be the case, if he was our nominee and he is indicted, he is not effectively able to represent Republicans, to represent our party, our message. Our, there's a lot of other disqualifying factors in that. But this is case in point why he should not be this. And if he was truly in it for, I, I don't even know how to say it, if he was truly in it for you and I, for our future and the policies that we 
stand behind to when we consider ourselves Republicans. He would step aside and allow somebody else who also believes those same policy stances, who's also going to fight the Democrats on that, who also could be a good figurehead for the Republican Party. He would step aside, but it just goes to show how he is in it for himself. And he is believes, truly believes that he is the only person who can save us. There's a level of delusion that I think also applies to him. I mean, disrespect. I have the utmost respect for anyone who served in the office of the presidency. I'm greatly challenged by by President Trump, by his role, his leadership. I, as again, I did not support him in 16 or 20. I think I think him running for president again, and even the remote possibility of him being indicted, I think is something that he has to just be salivating at. His team has to be salivating at. It absolutely plays in to the message that they've tried to portray, the martyr, the victim. And it, the problem is we all suffer because of it. Republicans suffer on it to the degree which we're both Republicans. You more than me, Republicans suffer. The Republican brand suffers. I think about the legislative candidates that are going to run in Minnesota, in Minnesota and all across the 50 states. Good candidates, candidates are going to run for governor, candidates are going to run for the Senate. Good, solid Republican candidates mm-hmm. are going to have to deal with this type of this monster that's going to be, it's going to just in presidential and election cycle in 2024. That's what's so frustrating to me. I wish it's, this is like watching a slow moving car crash and there's nothing you can do to stop it. Absolutely. And he's, it's, it not only will embolden his numbers, but man, that digital fundraising in particular, low dollar money that's going to come in from something like this is just going to be impressive. Is there anyone that listens to him? That could the, talk to him. That and listens to him, him or him. He I'm sorry. Let me rephrase to. that. Yes. Let me rephrase. It. You correctly pointed that out. Is there anyone that he would listen to that would advise him and say, look, this is a problem. You're going to take down the rest of the team because he's not much of a team player. No. It's I all mean, about the People's Republic of Trump. And and again, because I have to play devil's advocate here a little bit, he did do some successful things and good things over his time in office. That's just overshadowed by all of this. And to your point, I don't think there is anybody that he listens to, being that apparently he was going to fire his daughter and son-in-law. If you're not even going to listen to those folks, I believe he largely has been able to surround himself by yes men and women who say, yes, Mr. Trump, great idea, Mr. Trump, let's do that, Mr. Trump. Because I just don't think, I think anybody saying no is not loyal to him anymore and he has no time and reason for that. Worry about the long-term effects. To follow up on our interview with Senator Mary Quaid, she discussed the need for two vibrant parties. And I believe there needs to be two vibrant parties uh, in Minnesota and in this country. Um, I think Trump will annihilate the ability for the Republicans to be a true governing party in this country. Because the problem, what will happen is that the presidential race will simply turn into a fight and a debate all about Trump. This will not be a discussion on Biden's policies. We'll not have a substantive discussion on the president on race. This will be dominated a 20 or return to a 24 hour news cycle of minute by minute updates on what he said, what he tweeted. He actually doesn't tweet what he posts on his social media platform and other stuff like that. How often do you read truth social? Are you never even logged on? Okay. I logged on once. (laughs) I logged on once, but I don't log on once just to to check out a few things. It's a real cesspool of information. Yes. I know today was largely all about presidential politics. I don't think that's going to be a unique show for the next year and a half here. We will hopefully bring you back a little bit to some Minnesota topics here. We're excited to have you listen to our interview with Senator Aaron May Quaid here today. And uh, yeah, lots going on at the Minnesota legislature. More on that in the weeks to come. But the Trump stuff is going to be 
we're going to be talking about it until November 2024. Yeah, it's going to go on for a while. It's going to go on for a while and it's going to be unfortunate. It's going to give us great talking points and it's going to give us show material, but it's going to go on for a little too long. We're excited to be joined today by Senator Aaron May Quaid, who represents Senate District 56 in the Minnesota Senate. Senator, how is the session treating you so far? It's good. I think the only person who's not really cooperating is my daughter. She's 10 months old and she has had some ear infections and some sleep regressions. And being a new mom and a senator is a whole different ballgame. But the session is good. It's intentionally fast-paced and full of really exciting legislation and conversations and stuff we're getting done. Senator, you were elected to the Minnesota House of Representatives in 2016 and served one term in the House. You were elected to the Minnesota Senate this past November. Can you give our listeners your perspective on the differences between serving in the House versus the Senate? Also, give us your take on the first months in the Minnesota Senate and the pace of this legislative session. I sure can. So differences between the House and Senate. The Senate, I think, in my understanding, thinks of itself as like the more deliberative, like better body than the House. And I think half of the freshman class or first term class actually came from the House. And so we might take umbrage with that. And for all of its deliberative, it can be casual at times. Like I have found that in committee particularly. Some of the chairs aren't that strict about going through the chair for conversation. We couldn't drink water on the floor of the Senate for a while. And in the Senate, you really have to, everything you say has to go through the president. So if somebody asks you a question, like you don't answer that person's question. Like you tell the president what you think the answer is to that person's question. It's a little weird for like speaking, but on the whole, like it's the same work, longer term and just some different, fewer people. There is a one-seat majority in the Minnesota DFL in the Senate. As you work through these major bills and policy changes, are there one or two bills that you or your caucus are concerned about passing with such a slim majority? That's a good question. And I want to be really like transparent and say that because of divided government for so long, there is so much pent up demand for some of the most basic things that I really feel like we're clearing our way through that. We actually haven't gotten to the contentious or the like, maybe some of us support it, maybe not parts yet. And that's probably the, the best like answer I could give you is that none of the stuff that we've done so far has been even a question, right? It's just like this pent up demand. And so I think that's what we're still clearing our way through. Part of why it's able to go at the pace it's going is that a lot of these bills have large coalitions that have been working sometimes for 20 years on these bills. Some of these bills passed last session in divided government and just didn't get signed into law, right? So I think we're still working our way through the like stuff we know we don't even really need to talk about it. We're just doing it because everyone knows we're doing it. We haven't gotten to the let's dig in deep and find out where we might disagree stuff. We might have to have you back to talk near the end of session. One thing that Michael and I have talked a lot about is issues Republicans have with messaging and connecting with voters, particularly in the suburbs. You are a suburban senator and a woman in the suburbs, and we have talked a lot about Republicans failing to connect with suburban moms and suburban women in particular. Can you talk to us why you think uh, Republicans have had troubles with elections in Minnesota and why Democrats are doing so well, especially in this last election cycle where it was a surprise that Democrats won everything statewide? That, oh, wow. Okay, Aaron McQuaid diagnoses the problem in the Republican Party. I think- We'll help you out plenty with that one. Yes. <laughs> So 
I'll just say that I think one of the one of the like downfalls uh, that I saw during the election and I see it now is that a lot of times there's two maybe more. I think I think that we do have a lot of different parties in the country that we just organize ourselves into two primary parties before elections instead of after elections. I want to be really clear that this isn't the Republican Party as a whole. But it seems like the part of the Republican Party that a lot of suburban people belonged to is less and less represented within the Republican elected officials that are elected. And so when folks, let's just take Scott Jensen, for example, he was very clear very early on that he wanted to ban abortion. People who want to ban abortion want to ban abortion. And they've been very clear about that for decades. It was openly stated for a long time. And when abortion bans became realized, I think people realized how unpopular that opinion is, right? It's not shared by two thirds of the country, 77% of Minnesotans. And so I think just being able to demonstrate how out of step with kind of these regular voters who would go in and they would vote for a Democrat, they would vote for a Republican, or even they might vote straight Republican thinking, yeah, we might disagree on some stuff, but by and large, these are reasonable people who are there saying a lot of the things that I agree with, or at least values-based things that I agree with, are saying, "Uh uh-uh, actually, that's not the case. And I door knocked a lot in my district. And I had a lot of people say, listen, I've been a Republican for a long time. I don't think I can ever vote for a Republican again. They left me behind. And I don't recognize the party as it is now. And so I think just letting extremists, and I'll be really candid too, like, this has been a plan for extremists was to infiltrate one of the two political parties. So finding people who will give safe space to them, that's where they've landed. And so I think just making exception after exception till it became the norm, I think that's what really is driving people away. Do you think Republicans are failing as much in the suburbs on social issues or is it also on economic issues? Because I'm a Republican who supported Walls this past cycle. And I thought some of the messaging that came from Jensen's operation was just atrocious. But I think that Republicans are failing on both social and economic issues. But I wanted to get your take on that, particularly in the suburbs. I I totally agree with that. And I think one of the ways in which that's happening is trying to divorce out things that aren't considered quote unquote economic issues and saying, no, I don't think you should get to decide how big your family is, but that's not an economic issue as if like how many people you have to feed isn't an economic issue or like having paid time to bond with your baby isn't an economic issue or being able to drive to your job isn't an economic issue if you're an undocumented person. And so I think What happened during the pandemic is people started to realize and understand how many things are actually economic and not just like cultural things or social things, right? People who would say, I'm socially liberal, but I'm fiscally conservative. A lot of times that's just not really a thing that exists. And I do think it's losing the economic message and trying to still say things that sound like they're a good populist message or an economic message. And people feel like they understand that's actually not the case. And I agree, Michael, Jensen's messaging was bad. It was all over the place. Like it, it was nonsensical. And so there wasn't really like a through line there. It was really weird stuff. I remember I'd see a commercial. I'm like, that's a brand new message. Doesn't mean anything, but it's a new message. And then next week could be a totally different message and also didn't mean anything. So. No, I think that's an interesting way to put it of kind of some of the efforts that you guys are working on at the legislature that maybe Republicans tend to, voters in general, tend to put in a bucket of a social kind of policy that do have the economic implications. So I think that is a good point. Do you think as you guys are having these conversations, some Republicans up at the legislature are are hearing that and believing that and, and maybe coming over to the way of thinking of some of those things? Or are how's that communication with the Republicans at the legislature and, and where are you working with them? That's a good question. I will say that there has been 
a lot of bipartisan work, a lot of good conversations happening. I feel like sometimes I'm working on the last four issues that are bipartisan, literacy, hunger, veterans are three that I call out and then childcare. And I think what ends up happening is like when you get to that fundamental disagreement of should the government help or not, that's maybe where you see the breakdown. But is it important that people have childcare and it's affordable? Yes. Is it important that veterans are treated well? Yes. And then when it comes to the how, I think that's where we have some deeper policy discussions. But I do think things are happening in a bipartisan manner. I just don't think if the other party was in control, this would be the direction we're going. I worked for Congressman Emmer and he used to often say that Republicans and Democrats, end goal is the same. It's just the means of getting there that is different. And I think that's very true. I used to think that. I don't know if I always, I think that there are many, many senators here that I would agree with that with. But that's where I think we going back to our conversation before about what might be missing from some of the suburban voters. I think that the end goals are like starting to be different. And I think that's where people are having to choose. Oh, actually, it's not which way do I want to get there? It's where do I want to go? That's a very good point. One thing you did start out talking about your daughter. I'm also a new mom. I have an eight month old. Congratulations. Yeah, you too. And I just wanted to first, maybe if you could give us a little bit of a, some insight into you, you famously were in labor during your endorsement speech. How'd you survive that? <laughs> oh my. It's funny because I took a lot of birthing classes. I had a lot of anxiety around giving birth. I was scared to do it. And so I like over-prepared. And I think because I was aware of what was happening, I was trying to go inside my brain and get out of my own way, let my body do what it was going to do, that I didn't actually have a critical thinking lens that day to be like, is this a good idea? Should you keep going? We just didn't see another way to achieve what we wanted to achieve. And so I think the further we got away from that day, the more I was like, what was I thinking? But really, truly, I was just laboring on people. I remember at one point, I finished up a conversation with a person, my brother was standing there. And I was like, and I like put my head on him. And they say, keep your palms open and your jaw unclenched. And so I like had my palms resting on his shoulders. And I was just going, huh, I was having a contraction like on the floor of the convention. And so I just did that on random people. And like in our little war room, as we called it, I was like on all fours, like just laboring. It wasn't probably my most graceful time, but I just would have a contraction, talk to people, have a contraction, talk to people. And then sometimes I couldn't control having the contractions. And so it would happen in the middle of speeches. That is mad props for that. It's an incredible. <laughs> and so I know you have a we lots of work going on up there. So we want to be mindful of your time. But being a new mom, I did want to ask, do you think your mindset around your work up at the legislature, does it, do you feel like it carries a little bit more weight wanting to make policy, create policy for your daughter's future? I think that I've always had the mindset that it shouldn't have to happen to me for it to matter to me. And so I very much try all kids are kids, right? Is like the motto I have. But I will say that it is harder to listen to testimony from parents who have kids with complex medical needs and they can't find skilled nursing assistants or they've been victims of mass shootings to it just just, I imagine my daughter, right? And it is just way more emotional than um, than when I was like, imagine, I was imagining their kids, right? When I would hear that testimony, I would imagine their kids and I would be like, that is horrible and I'd be upset. And now it's just my kid. And it is a lot more, it draws on that deep well a lot more too. And I, I feel like very mama bear about everybody's kid now because it's just my kid. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, there are certainly, I can say there's certainly definitely things that they say you don't understand until you're a parent that definitely does change the mindset a little bit. Yeah. And I just want to name too, I'll give you guys a little bit more time because we took some time getting our microphones together, but go ahead, Michael. <clears throat> no, I don't want to interrupt you. Go ahead. 
That's all I was going to say. Well, thank, you, thank you so much. So just yeah. give me a cut sign when you, when you, when you need to yeah. cut you out. The, you're almost at the halfway point of the legislative. What should Minnesotans be, be watching for in the final few months here? That we're almost at the halfway point. By all accounts, although Republicans would disagree on the speed and the intensity, by all accounts, it's been a productive session more than other sessions. And, that's, and just as a Minnesotan watching, not putting partisan blinders on, by all accounts, it's been a, a, a very productive session. What is the what's the debate going to be more as we get into these final weeks and months of the last legislative session? Is it going to be budget? What what are the fights that are or the debates that are still yet to come? Yeah, I think it's really important for folks to know that even though we have spent some money at the top of session, most of the things that we've done have been policy related. While we put together our budgets, while we got budget targets for committees, while we waited for the February forecast to be released, and so I think like it is for most legislative sessions, but certainly this one, it will be around budgets. It will be around what's the where's the biggest need, what's the emergency. I think that there's a few different places that we can look to. One is places that have not gotten what they've needed to do what they're already supposed to be doing. I think of our schools as a really good place for that. And then it's people who desperately need our time, attention, and services that aren't getting it now. And I think people with disabilities in particular is a good one. And so I think I like to live from a mindset of abundance that we can do all the things, but I think budgets themselves are finite numbers that come down to this thing. And so I think it'll just be figuring out what can we do now, what can we look to for ongoing funding? What can we do with one-time funding? I think bonding is going to come into play earlier than it would. I think it'll come into play this year, not just next year. So I, I think those conversations will happen. But I also think it might be more of a Senate conversation than an internal caucus conversation because the House really has their majority muscle built up and well-oiled and it's practiced and strong. And ours is we're flexing it all the time, but it's newer. And so I think it'll be the House has never had to negotiate or talk with a DFL Senate before. And so I think those are going to be some of the bigger conversations is our caucus has decided this is the House in agreement. And now how do we negotiate back and forth? Got it. Now, taking it outside of Minnesota a little bit, we've talked previously in the show today about the presidential campaigns and oh. cycle that's coming up. Obviously, on the Republican side, we're seeing more hats thrown in the ring. On the Democrat side, we, Marianne Williamson, her, her, <laughs> and any insight into what you expect to see or would like to see in the Democrat primary or just from the president, if he secures the nominee and is going up against Trump. <laughs> probably Trump. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. I think people are over uh, estimating Ron DeSantis's ability. You're absolutely right. Yeah, there's a I, there's a state senator in Florida I had the pleasure of meeting with, and she was like, "Look, I know that on paper it sounds great, but this man is not good at talking to people. He is not good at debating." And I was like, ah, "I didn't know that." So I do think it'll be Trump, and I, you know, from all indications, it'll be President Biden in the Democratic primary, and so I guess him and Marianne Williamson, who is just such a personality, she is weird. So I, I don't think he'll have a way of putting it. Any problem securing the endorsement. And so I, then it'll just be a showdown again of 2020, which I wonder what that does to the electorate. Are they excited? Are they not excited? We've been here before. I don't know what that does. And I, I don't think Trump is having as much fun as he's been having in the past, which I think plays into it. Although I'm not going to lie to you. I think President Biden's having a lot of fun. I'm not going to lie to you. I think he's having more fun than I anticipated him having. And so I was, I've been surprised by like the vigor that he's been bringing recently, the State of the Union being a really good example. At that point, I was like, maybe he won't run. I think he's running and I think he's enjoying it. So, One of the things that, that Becky and I talked about on a previous episode 
was the State of the Union and how we viewed it as a campaign kickoff for President Biden, and that he did a very successful job of engaging his opponents in a way that made him look good. When you have Marjorie Taylor Greene out there as your opponent, that balances out. I agree with you a little bit on, we have both talked about a rematch of Biden Trump and how with all the people we have in the United States, it seems that we could maybe have some better candidates running, but ultimately that's what it's going to be. And I agree with you that does have, that may have an impact on the race in terms of enthusiasm. But I think also, I think, I agree with you. I think that Biden has stepped it up. I think that State of the Union was a good opportunity. And I think that a rematch against Trump he did beat him once before, contrary to what a number of Republicans think. He did beat him <laughs> once before. And so I'm pretty confident in the rematch, but I think that's where it's trending. Becky? Yeah, I think your earlier comment about how we tend to break or voters tend to break down into the two parties before the election rather than after both both Michael here and identify as Republicans, but not Trump supporters. So it is going to be interesting to see how that process plays out with the MAGA voters, the, I guess we call ourselves establishment voters. <laughs> the establishment. Okay. So I, it is going to be interesting on both sides of the aisle. We have those extremists that that do come out. They are loud and vocal. And just to see how the narrative shapes up, it's going to be an interesting, what, year and a half? Year and a half. Do you see a lane for a Sununu or like a moderate Republican? Do you think there's enough of you maybe throughout the country to have a viable no. Okay. Michael's shaking his head. That's I'm I'm sorry. I, should, I shouldn't have shaken that, that question off. It's a great question. There's moments of hope that I have, but then I watch the news coverage of CPAC and I mm. see someone like Nikki Haley getting heckled. Oh, and sure. People on the Republican side that are going after being critical of uh, the other candidates that are showing up because they're challenging the president. Trump. It's frustrating. It's really frustrating. I feel a lot of times in Minnesota, when we're up against the DFL, it's like the Harlem Globetrotters versus the Washington <laughs> Generals. And I feel like I'm playing for the Washington Generals these days because it's just a frustration to see. And I was hoping for more out of CPAC. I was hoping for more positivity of all the candidates, but it was a Trump show. And I'm a little bit more cautiously optimistic that somebody... <laughs> is <laughs> shaking his head, that somebody could maybe take down Trump. A lot would have to happen for that. We need somebody that can still appeal to those MAGA voters. Those are largely our activists, our door knockers, the folk, people who do the phone calls that were energized by Trump in 16 and 20, that we need to keep energized to have any path to victory, while also finding somebody to appeal to those donors that maybe have sat out and kept their checkbooks closed. So mm. we need somebody who can do that, whether that's a Sununu or somebody yet to be named. Governor Hogan has has officially not throwing his hat in the ring because we have largely said that if there are the more candidates in, the more likely it's going to be Trump. Slightly optimistic, but it's likely going to be a showdown. Maybe when we chat again at end of session, we'll have more insight for you. I think there's one of the things that is like mildly comforting is that if there was a person that a moderate Republican would vote for that's a Democrat, it would probably be somebody like Joe Biden. And so I think that as a Democrat, as a DFLer, as somebody who's maybe a little more progressive than President Biden, there is, I think it is important and imperative that we have two healthy parties in this country. And I, I do feel for friends that are Republicans who don't have a place where they feel like this is a good place to, to be aligned with the people that are going to be in this room. And there are seasons for everything. And as the Democratic Party has, has old seasons of not doing great, and I, it's unfortunate that this is the season for the Republican Party just dipping its toe or jumping full feet in to some weird shit, man. But uh, at least you'll have someone you can vote for that's not, I guess, so progressive that it's like untenable. 
Yeah, I did not support Trump in 16 or 20. And I, but I agree with you. I think you made a great point about there need to be a vibrant party. And that's one of the things that we're trying to, that Becky and I are trying to talk about a lot is elevating the discussion. That's why we're so appreciative of you being here today. We're trying to have responsible, reasonable conversations with Republicans and Democrats about issues. And you've been so kind with your time today for coming on and talking with us and making time in this busy session. We hope we can have you back at some point. We hope the experience wasn't too bad that you would consider. No, it's great. Coming back, coming on and talking at a later point. Yeah, I've not gotten a chance to ask any Republicans about Chris Anunu or like what they think. So this is great. I'm going to I'm going to come back and we'll talk more about what y'all think. That sounds Perfect. great. Appreciate your time today, okay? Thank you so much for having me. Where can where can people follow you? On Senate website, we're on social media. You're active on social media, you're great on social media. Where can they follow you at? I'm at Aaron May Quaid, E-R-I-N-M-A-Y-E-Q-U-A-D-E on all social media. Wonderful. Senator, <laughs> thank you so much for your time. You were so great. Thank you. And we look forward to having you back in the near future. It was such a pleasure to talk to you and best of luck as you continue on. Thank you See so ya. much. Have a great day. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye. Let's talk about uh, the tweet of the week. All right. The tweet of the week. Tweet of the week. I think we're doing a joint one. We're gonna, Our first joint tweet of the week because it was that good of a tweet. It was that good. And we both know this person. Yes. Jan Unstad DJ tweeted on March 3rd, tweeted this weekend. The attorney general tweeted out that another Kia, another stolen Kia in response to a car chase that was caught on video, dramatic car chase. And it was very interesting wording from the attorney general. It said, another stolen Kia. Jan retweeted and said, another juvenile fleeing police. The Kia didn't do this. The kid did. Correct. Which was spot on. Spot on. Jan was a friend, mentor of mine. She was my boss back in Ember 2010. And great point here. I don't know what the attorney general was trying to get at here other than this is a problem with Kias. You know, let's get rid of Kias because they're too likely to be stolen. I don't really know. The video was, if you haven't seen it, I think it was a Care 11 tweet or a video up a entrance or exit ramp and straight off a bridge. And then they ran. They were later apprehended, but it's true. The Kia did not go off that bridge after stealing that car. It was the juvenile. We want to, it's our first, when it was a great tweet by Jan, worthy of our being our first joint tweet of the week. Yes. I want to thank you again for showing up, being here. I'll try to continue. And we have a couple other things to announce. We have a website now. We do. We are at BB Breakdown. We are at bbbreakpod.com. BB breakpod.com is our website. Our Twitter account is at bbbreakpod2. So again, that's where you can, we can find both of us. Your Twitter account is also Allery RL. And I'm at Adam Broadcorp. And so we have a new Twitter account, new website up. People can send us comments. They can download our episodes, give us a review. If you like what you're hearing, and I hope you are, based on the feedback they're receiving, I think people are, give us a review on any of the platforms that you listen to podcasts on. You can also leave a review on our website now. And we look forward to coming back next week with another great episode. Sure are. Thank you so much. And we'll talk with you next week.